Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm Michael Fragan on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, JM in the AM.org. We are here live from the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Here's ZK in the control booth. Judith is joining me once again. She's back after hiatus last week. Judith, where were you last week? Last week, I was in Washington, D.C. with 165 Yeshiva University students. Oh, tell us more about that. Well, we took 165 students to lobby on Capitol Hill with their member of Congress or their senator or both so they could talk about the U.S.-Israel relationship and the importance of America supporting Israel in this critical time. And actually, a lot of the legislation that we worked on passed. Well, one for sure passed, and we got a lot of successful That was pretty quick work. Well, you know, we work fast. We're effective. We're practically pros. There's nothing like uh, college students to to get something done. That's what we hear. You know, getting those lobby appointments, it wasn't as difficult as we thought. People really enjoy hearing from students. It turns out we have some charm. Well, that's, of course, debatable. <laughs> Certainly persistence. and uh, But, uh, you know, I guess there is some charm in that. Uh, there's no question that there's strength in numbers. And 160 is not bad for people. Not bad at all, especially because we were asking people to take off a day of school right before finals. And, and we even had, you know, more people sign up. We just were limited by space. We could only bring a certain number of people. So we couldn't bring all the people that even wanted to come. So how many people wanted to go? We had about 198 sign up. Okay, and only 160 could go. Yes. Wow, look yeah. at that. So who did you hear from? Who did you speak to? We uh, we first spent time in the APAC headquarters, and we heard from Jonathan Kessler, the leadership director, and we heard from Esther Kurtz. She's a, she's a lobbyist there. And then we heard from Josh Joseph, who is actually the vice president of Yeshiva University. He came to... He came, Lawrence he resident Skyped Josh Joseph, yes. Yeah, well, okay. he Skyped in. Got to give a shout out to the hometown. Of course. And, you know, it was really... Oh, he Im- wasn't live? He Skyped no, in? No, he Skyped in. And it, um, and so technologically advanced. Well, the thing is that last year we went on this lobby mission, but unfortunately, I, I think that the school's, uh, school's encouragement was missing. And this year I wanted to make sure that all the students felt that Shiva University was really behind them and proud of them and excited, excited for what they were about to do. And so I wanted to integrate them as much as I could. So we heard from Rabbi Brander that he did our opening remarks at the lobbying training on Tuesday night. And then we heard from Josh Joseph on the day of, and he spoke beautifully about the importance of being involved and the importance of representing Yeshiva University. Excellent. And then we heard from uh, Representative Leader Eric Cantor. And that was awesome, and uh, it was a really phenomenal experience for all of us, but especially Wait, Judith, did for me. Did you just say that the re- a Republican was awesome? That's, yeah, well, you know, this it, is a new step for somebody from I California. Don't, <laughs> I don't often get to shake their hand, so him, he was very, he was very wonderful and polite, and, and it was exciting, regardless of uh, how much we agree on other issues. I think when it comes to Israel, we're on the same page, and so I can respect him, and I can be excited about that. Excellent. And who else? That's it. That's it. Just Derek Cantor. That was, yeah, that was the only person that. That was the only representative. Where did you go to? Got. Who did you go to visit, though? Well, we met with. Um, we had over thirty-seven lobby appointments. Okay. So we had uh, each person really. Tell, went, tell us what a lobbying appointment is. What does it mean to be? Yeah, for the people out there who who may not have ever been on a lobbying appointment before. A lobbying appointment is probably one of the most unique and unbelievably American things you can do. I mean, you get to go in and you speak to either your representative themselves or a staff member, and you get to tell them exactly what's on your mind. And uh, so for these, for this instance, we had specific talking points, certain pieces of legislation that we were trying to push. And so we had trained everyone the night before on Tuesday, well, it was two nights before, on Tuesday night, so they knew exactly what they were talking about, exactly how to approach it, how to make it a convincing and compelling argument. And then they went to present this information to to the representative or the staff member. And it, it's a little-known fact, but representing to the staff member is just as effective, if not even more effective, than, repre- than speaking to the representative themselves because a lot of times the representatives are busy, and when it comes to a vote, you know, whatever the staff member says, that's what they'll do. They, they trust them, and they turn to them for advice, and they turn to them to know which way to vote. And this was actually the first time – well, this was my first time ever leading a lobby mission, and it was incredibly successful. Um, but And I, I really appreciate the people that I was working with but well, you can give some shout outs. This is a I good time. Give, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the whole ahead. board with Ben Shiner, he's my co-president. And of course, um, the entire UPAC cadre, there's 14 people. So I don't I don't really want to go through all 14. But you know who you are. And I'm incredibly, incredibly appreciative for all the hard work that they did. And this was the first time that I've ever um, I've ever had people write me back the next morning. Not the, the students wrote me back 
forwarding the emails from the representatives and their staff members saying, you know, we signed on to that bill this morning. And within 24 hours, we had over, uh, we had like four senators sign on to a bill and we had like five representatives say that they were going to commit to signing on to something as well. So, I mean, we don't know. That's an outstanding turnout for, for students going for the day to hear back, you know, within 24 hours that they have been effective. I mean, it, it gets them excited. It gets me excited. And to know that we have this little part, a very important part in the U.S.'s relationship, um, it, it's exciting. And I think it's something that everyone should be a part so of. So I think what you're trying to say is that anybody out there can do it, too. Any, any, it doesn't really take that much. You make an appointment with your elected official. You go down to Washington if there's something you really, really care about, something that really, really bothers you. Oh, yes you... and no. Okay. Yes and no. No, not everyone could just go in and walk into the office and say, you know, I have an issue. I want well, to. Well, you talk probably about should it. call first to make sure that they're there. <laughs> right, but I don't think that they take everyone's. I don't think that they take everyone uh, just willy nilly off the street. But I do know that there were some people. Charlie Rangel hadn't been signed on to a specific piece of legislation that we wanted him to sign on to, and we didn't have an appointment with him. Um, but we actually, I had a few students just show up in his office and, and badger his foreign affairs uh, staff member, the person who deals with it, and tell them how important it was. Even though they didn't have an appointment, they went there and they said, this is so important to us. We're not leaving this office until we talk to your foreign affairs staffer. And they did. And they did. The and, old sit-in. Yeah. We are they, not leaving until not leaving. dot, dot, dot. Hey, it's a fa- if it works, but I think that you really, uh, you need someone to coordinate all the information and make sure that, that you get the meeting. I don't, I don't think everyone, you know, should go in there unless they're really sure and certain about the What office did they do the sit-in at? At Congressman Charlie Wrangell. At Wrangell's office. Our, uh, Yeshiva Universities. Yeah, he rep- correct. He represents it, Washington Heights. Exactly, right. and we're not going to be falsely represented. So he wasn't signing on to a, a specific bill regarding Iran, and we wanted him to sign on, and so we weren't leaving until he until he did. So thankfully, um, thankfully, I was with a bunch of students, a, a group of students who were dedicated, who were who cared, who were interested, and who were willing to sacrifice uh, for a greater experience. When I was when I was advertising it, I told them, you know, you can't learn everything in a classroom. And I think that's what I think that's what I I think what everyone experienced is that you can't learn some of these lessons in a classroom. You can't learn about being a pro-Israel activist in a classroom. It really needs to be something that you experience hands-on. It needs to be something that you go up to Capitol Hill and you 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 talk to the people who are making the decisions. It's not enough to just go to a rally. Wow, look at that! So not just politics, but protest as well. Well, no, I'm saying saying it's not enough to go to a rally. No, it's, no, it's but not. I'm talking about the Wrangle thing. I mean, oh, that's, yeah. that, well, that's know, great. It is great. It is great. And that's when I you know. You look very proud. I, I mean, there's no I video right proud. now, but people can see that, that you I, look very proud. I am proud because they're, they're, they went beyond what they had to do. They did it because they care and they did it because they wanted to, not just because uh, that was the appointment they had. They went beyond and, and they and I'm just so proud. And I, I think that everyone walked away from that day uh excited about what they did i think it's it's one of those trips that you make where you walk away feeling productive you're not you're not wasting a day you're using a day you're investing in that day and you're getting so much out of it and it was actually interesting because we went uh right after we went in between yom hatzmut and right after yom hashoah and so a lot of the times that we you know a lot of the speakers kept on bringing up times of yom hashoah and and uh especially the specific instance when the 100 rabbis or 500 rabbis came to Capitol Hill to talk to the president and he wouldn't see them. And how different it is now that even a college student can go see someone who's making the decisions. I mean, it's just it's just a world of a difference. And that's something that we should be proud of as the we should be proud of for the people who are organized about you know, U.S. Israel relationship, but also that's something to be proud of your government about, that they're willing to listen to you and now they're open ears and we've shown them how important the U.S. Israel relationship is and now they're willing to listen to the Jewish people when they have something to say. Wow, so that's great. That's great. So it sounds like a very exciting day. Obviously took a lot of effort, a lot of work, a lot of planning. Yeah. No question about that. But you're going to be back in D.C. this summer, right? I will be back in D.C. this summer. I will and um, I'm very excited about that. I'm very excited. I mean, you know, it's anyone who wants to be into politics. That's the place to be. It's the hub. It's the center of. It's the center of the you know U.S. Uh, American pol- political life. And I feel fortunate that I was given the opportunity, or that I earned the opportunity. Okay, uh, excellent. Well, look, we are going to. We have quite a show uh, right now, so we are going to uh, get into a couple uh, different topics. But it's hard to see how politics itself is really going to be. You know what we should be talking about because what happened 
in Boston this week and the other the letters with the ricin and it just harkens back to a time a couple of years ago when every day there was another threat there was something else out there that we were very nervous about going about our everyday lives and really thank god for as we can see for the law enforcement the intelligence communities out there who have really kept us safe since 9-11 to a large degree who have really gone out there new york city police department just absolutely incredible job and their thousand their thousand officers tasked to counter terrorism and the their intelligence unit it's really it's really incredible hopefully we'll explore that on a on a further show but one thing we're going to do right now is gonna is gonna really kind of talk about something like boston and uh or i'm sorry kind of give you an idea about what it's like to be in what's known as a mass casualty incident. And uh, we have a representative, not just a representative, but an expert, I should say, an expert from New York City OEM with us, uh, Morty Goldfeder. And that name might ring a bell. There's other Goldfeders out there. I don't want to take away at all from Morty Goldfeder. So I'll let you use your imagination as to what, uh, you know, as to what the other Goldfeder connection might be. But Morty Goldfeder is the, uh, is the head of planning and uh, for for emergency medical planning for New York City Office of Emergency Management. And he specializes in the planning for any types of big events. Something like the Boston Marathon itself would be uh, something would come into his uh, under his purview. And the kind of idea of, okay, what do we do before something happens? What do we do when it's happening? And ha- how do we deal with it as a as a, as a city, and uh, Morty really has a unique perspective. He's also a long-time, very long-time Hatsala member. I don't want to say how old he is, but he's a long-time Hatsala member, and uh, really a guy that other Hatsala members look up to as, as for his medical knowledge. So, Morty, welcome to Spin Class. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's, uh, it's a great honor to be here. Okay, so tell us about OEM. What is emergency management, and what is it that you do? So emergency management is really coordinating uh, um, all the different city agencies. So we're a big city, and we have lots and lots of agencies. We have a fire department, a police department, a health department, a buildings department, plus a lot of um, um, non-for-profit groups that deal with hospitals and nursing homes. So there's a lot of groups that we have to get together in an emergency. It's uh, When you, you think of a, 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 a just a, a simple fire in a house, how many different um, uh, services have to come to deal with that issue besides the fire department. You have the DEP to deal with the water and the hydrant. You have the buildings department to check the, the, the building if it's compromised. So OEM is the one agency that, that gets together and, and brings all these agencies to the table to, uh, to, to get them to work out what the issues are and, and to have the problem solved and so people can move on. So you've obviously staged and planned for something like the New York City Marathon. So, so uh, oh yeah, and, okay, I, and that's uh, so. Tell us what they would be doing. I, I I hate to use the word fortunate, but everybody on in the media seems to say that it was fortunate in a way that the bombs went off at the finish line where the medical tent was, where the medical personnel were already there. So as you can imagine, when you run a, a long marathon, at the end, uh, many of the, the runners get fatigued. No matter how much they train, anytime you have a marathon, there's just so much fatigue. And even if you get a little injured along the route, you want to keep pushing because you trained so long to be in that marathon. So when you get to the end, um, many of the runners who you know are normally in great shape, all of a sudden they, they start becoming ill and there's a lot of injuries that all of a sudden that now are hurting them now that their adrenaline has uh, calmed down. So usually at the end, the medical tent, they put extra medical personnel. They have more ambulances standing by, uh, more doctors standing by, so that when these things happen, and they inevitably do, they always happen every year. They always have a big medical tent. Um, they all have an extra one for the VIPs that come. They have So there's usually a lot extra medical personnel at the finish line. So these medical personnel were able to kind of swing into action. Absolutely, right away. You know, these are your regular emergency first responders. You know, they already have the the specialized equipment, the turnout gear. Their helmets uh, were probably close by. But they, why would they have why would they have their helmets there if it was just a marathon? Because you always have to be ready, and that's one of the things we we always prepare, and especially in this business, you never know what's going to happen. Um, you know, we look at some of the parades over the years and the different things that happen at parades. Um, you know, one year the the uh, the balloons at the Thanksgiving Day Parade uh, knocked into the telephone pole and, and created a lot of injuries. So you never know really what's going to happen, and you always have to be prepared. 
So tell us about what you would imagine the first couple seconds were like in Boston. And uh, and it's possible already you've been debriefed or you have debriefed and gotten information already from Boston. I know you don't want to share anything sensitive about what happened, but give us a scenario hypothetically about what they might be thinking. I, I've heard the I've heard the radio traffic from the from the scanner of of the police department and just you know, it sounds it sounds awful. It sounds chaotic. How do you keep control? Well, control is very different, difficult. But, you know, one of the things that we learned in this business is, is what we call control chaos. And I'll tell you, the first few seconds, you probably heard nothing. Everyone is probably still in shock, and it takes a few seconds till, you know, people start kicking into that first gear. And, uh, uh, and then, but once those few seconds pass, you know, and you realize that, okay, there's something happened, uh, the first people close by are going to start, you know, taking a, a scene size up. Let's, let's take a, a, a quick look. Who's, you know, laying on the ground, who's still walking, who's limping around to try to get an idea. Um, I mean, that's the most important thing for the first responders. Um, but then at the same time, everybody else is, is shouting into the radios. They know that something happened. Everyone wants to let somebody know that something happened. Um, so, yeah, the first few scenes are going to be chaotic. Uh, you know, no matter where you go, there's no way to really get that control. And it usually takes a few minutes. Um, you know, um, good dispatchers. And again, I didn't have the chance to listen to any of the, the what went on in Boston. But you know, if you listen to what happened in New York City over the many years and the many disasters that we have, the, the good dispatchers will put a tone on the radio, try to get some silence, and try to get one person to give a, a scene size up of what happened, so we can get the right resources there at the right time. Right. The dispatcher in Boston kept saying, "Just Delta eight nine four," and I assume that's somebody's call sign. Right. And that that probably is, and just just to get that person's attention to keep everybody off. And and of course, you know, a lot of people want to shout that they have a, a patient here or a patient there, but you know, it's it's hard to get one dispatcher to get all that information at one time. Now, the injuries suffered seem to be particularly horrific, and we saw many of them because because of the nature of the bomb and or the bombs and how they were packed and they were loaded with strap shrapnel and specifically to injure lower extremities. It's, I mean, it's pretty awful. I will tell you as a, as a long time EMT, I'm not a big fan of open fractures, uh, looking at them. It's kind of, nobody wanted to look at, uh, Kevin, uh, where, where in the, you know, in the, from Louisville in that basketball game, nobody could look at that. And here we had literally dozens of them. Uh, what, what's that like for somebody who's not used to it? You can have medical personnel who are there, but they're kind of thinking, okay, I'm going to treat cramps and or, you know, somebody's going to be dehydrated. I'll give them an IV, but I'm not ready for serious trauma. So I'll tell you, one of the interesting things is, is you know, when you talk about it, people will say, oh, you know, I may not be ready for it. But when that incident happens and that patient's in front of you and that patient needs help, you know, everyone just jumps into action and they don't think about it. They really do. They just continue going. I'll tell you, it used to be the story uh, the old days when before we had masks and stuff, giving CPR. You know, they used to teach you, you just keep going. And what happens if that patient throws up? Well, you know what? You wipe it off and you keep on going. And you don't even think about it because that's what happens. You just get into the action. You know your job is there to save lives, whether you're a volunteer or paid. That's what you're there for. And you just do it. And then after is when we start reflecting. And that's when the bad things start happening in our minds is, is after when we start thinking about what we actually did. So we're going to also open this up to call-ins. So the number is 212-529-4620, 212-529-4620. Feel free to call in with questions, comments. I know this is not our usual political talk, but uh, this is certainly something that's on everybody's mind this week, and I wanted to kind of delve inside the inside the tragedy, inside the response. And I think that everybody, Morty, kind of gives the Boston Police Department, Fire Department, EMS, a very high grades for what they did. And uh, not, you know, not to say that uh, that you should, you know, be grading them. I don't want to put you into that uh, into that position. But uh, I think that a lot of things worked well over there. Yeah, I mean, uh, your Boston happens to be one of those places where they have a, a, a phenomenal police fire department, their EMS. You know, their structure is very similar to what we have here in New York City. And uh, and they are they – Explain. Are, explain that. Well, they have a, a, an EMS department that's, that's pretty much run by the, the city of Boston. So uh, um, they have a good control of their EMS units. It's not – it's not completely the same in New York City, but we have one central dispatch office where you know dispatch all the units in New York City, and they have the same. So they, you know, all operate under the same protocols, and they all operate uh, and they train together for when they have to deal with these mass casualty incidents as well. 
with the same the same people, the same the same type of super supervision structure that they have. I mean, when you go to more rural areas where it's two ambulances in, in an ambulance company and they have a big incident, you, you have ambulances responding from all these different counties. They never train together. They never work together. So it's 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 a lot more difficult to work in those situations. You don't know what the other people are capable of. And here, when you're in a situation where where every you know how these people trained and you know what they can do and how many patients they can treat, um, it makes it a lot easier and easier to get the job done much more efficiently. It's kind of what happened in Texas last night. I mean, if you think about it, it's just an incredible week because you had two massive mass scale tragedies uh, in both Boston. I mean, which is clearly a active, uh, you know. Uh, a man-made act, and the uh, and the one in Texas, which is it seems like a freak accident, and uh, certainly, but in Texas, that this is a small town, which is basically leveled, and they don't have enough of their own resources to tackle that to tackle that. That's right. Issue. And then to get more resources into that area is quite difficult, and we 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 don't, we don't even know what's going to be the end result of that. Texas, we still don't have a, right. People can't even go in there. We can't get a count on the bodies. Yeah, it's, it's a difficult situation there. Wow. So talk about working in a crime scene. I mean, immediately you have a situation where you have all these people there, but at the same time, there are people there who say, oh, don't move anything. You know, we're, we, we need every we, we need to preserve all this as evidence. You know, so you, you know I, those guys. I'll tell you, it's simple. You know, when I came on, on the job working for, for the fire department many years ago, um, you know, we came up with a lot of situations like that where there are crime scenes, not necessarily terrorist acts like this, but, you know, small victim crimes, whether it was, you know, a home invasion or whatever type of incident it was. Um, and, you know, the police department, they have to do their job, and everyone has to do their job. But, but the most important thing is life safety. And as long as there's a, a chance to save a life, you know, we, we try to be mindful of that it's a crime scene, but we have to do our job. And if it means taking out the patient, then we take out the patient. Um, but we try to preserve as much as we can, and we try to keep the memory of how we found the patient and what we did. Um, because, you know, there may be come time later where we have to talk about it in court, what we found, how we found the patient. And... Who's in charge, right? You, you get there and it's a it's a medical scene, it's a crime scene. Is there always there's always that talk of the battle of the badges, right? Well, Fire department's in charge, EMS is in charge, police department always wants to be in charge. Everybody wants to be in charge. You know how, so how does how does that work? There's something called incident command. And so how, how does, in, tell us in, about that. In, in New York City, we're a little bit different. We have a, a, a document called SIMS, the Citywide Incident Management System, and it really dictates who's in charge of what type of scene. But when you're talking about a, a medical call, as long as that patient's a medical patient, you know, and there's, and and the scene is safe, so that you know there's there's no chance of the the, the EMS personnel getting harmed, then it's you know the EMS people have to do their job. Um, but you know, always preserving. You know, we learn that when we treat patients, we have to treat them and, and preserve as much evidence as possible. You have to remember that the scene is is a crime scene, and and that's evidence. You just looking at it is is evidence enough in court. Um, their clothes, um, how you found them, and these are all important things to take note of. Um, you know, I guess the battle of the badges comes out where you know those are usually public scenes where where you know that's right. that might be something the media just likes to talk about, but uh, that's well, you know, listen, there's uh, everyone likes to come out and take credit for for different jobs they do, and uh, um, but you know, EMS, uh, our job is always to save lives, and we try not to get too involved in in, in those battles. Okay, of course not. But but you're both EMS as well as the overall incident commander, right? They, I, I'm saying OEM itself is you're there to kind of manage the entire incident for for multi agencies. So we're we're a supporting agency. Supporting, okay. So we're we're we what we say is we're not experts at any particular field, and we let the experts do their job, and they tell us what they need. So if the fire department is at the scene of a burning building and they tell us they need more water, then we make sure that GEP is there to, to get them the water. If they if we need buildings department to help with a, a vacate of a building that has illegal occupancy, so we get the right people there to get the job done. Fascinating. So we're at what point do you does the does the nature of the incident change? I mean. When what point does it become? I mean, this uh, Boston was obviously it was a mass casualty incident immediately. At what point does that does that designation come about? And what how does that change people's thinking? Or is just any what you know what is it as far as uh, what's that designation of mass casualty terrorist incident? What, what what are you calling it? 
So, you know, we it, it's not the EMS job to sort of call it a, 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 a terrorist incident or not. That's really the police department's job. And so for New York City, you know, until a, a, an incident is designated something, the police department's in charge. And then once they determine it is or isn't a terrorist scene, then they'll give it over and share what we call the command. Of it, but as long as it's a terrorist incident, you know they want to come in, secure the evidence, and they don't want anyone who's not supposed to be there or not trained to be there to uh, to interfere. Okay, a marathon goes over twenty six miles. Okay, so talk about pro- providing the appropriate planning for twenty six miles for a twenty six mile incident, and without even any without a bomb going off, but just the basic idea of providing support and medical personnel for something occurring over 26 miles. So I'll tell you, the planning for, for the marathon starts months and months beforehand. Um, you know, first they you know get an accurate count of how many runners they're going to be. So they'll know the proportion of approximately how many EMS. And then, you know, we've been doing this for many years. So, you know, we know approximately, you know, for some degree of if the temperature is going to be a certain type that day, how many you know, uh, people may start falling down at the first mile marker, second mile marker, and so on. And they put medical teams across that whole spectrum. All 26 miles, I would say every uh, 250 to 300 feet, they'll be stationed an ambulance, uh, maybe an, uh, an ambulance with EMTs. And then every third every or fourth. Every 200 feet? 200 to I, 300 I w- feet? I would say, uh, yeah, every, every uh, Are there any other ambulances left in the city of New York? Uh, oh, the well, marathon? these are these are uh, a combination of, of what we call mutual aid resources, volunteers. Mutual aid means? Mutual aid means when we ask other, uh, other area um, um, ambulances to uh, come and help out in the area because we're shorthanded or we, wanna, we don't want to use the 911 resources or that's resources left for the 911 system. We don't want to have to use those and save those for real emergencies. Or I shouldn't say real emergencies, but other emergencies happening around the city. Mm-hmm. So we call in and we ask volunteers to help. And there's many volunteers across the city. Um, every neighborhood has their own neighborhood volunteer. And usually during the weekends, they're staffed. And they're always looking for uh, uh, to be a part of the system. So whenever we have events, you know, we have a, a, five, uh, five, uh, we have a, a bike tour coming up, a citywide biking event coming up real soon. Five Borough Bike Tour. The Five Borough Bike Tour. Right. And uh, so uh, the Regional EMS Council. May 5th. May 5th. Cinco de Mayo. Okay, I see. I wasn't sure. I knew it was coming up soon. <laughs> I think it's May 5th. That's, uh, uh, well, whatever. We'll call it Cinco de Mayo anyway. So the, the Regional EMS Council, uh, the fire department puts out a request to the Regional EMS Council, and they, they're the ones who coordinate all the local ambulance departments, and they uh, send it out so that uh, they get volunteers, and they usually get plenty of volunteers to come and work these events. So you get, so you've got a combination of your resources, of the volunteer resources. How does everybody know what to do at the right time? I mean, we talked about kind of everybody kind of springs into action. They do what they're trained for. But, you know. So in planning this event, they have something called an incident, an incident action plan. And that's a, a plan that really, uh, uh, lists exactly what everyone's supposed to be doing. Um, what type of radios, um, they're carrying what channel they're on, what what section they're supposed to be in, what to do if there's a patient, how to track patients, and it's a it's a very detailed plan, uh, and it tells you exactly you know where each ambulance is supposed to be, who you're supposed to report to. It gives all the information, um, cell phone numbers and and names of of all the people who 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 you have to be uh, there responsive to. Wow. So if nothing were to happen, okay, if nothing were to have happened, how many people would go to the hospital in the average marathon? Oh, I don't even know, but it is quite a bit. It is right. quite a bit. I don't know what the number is off the top of my head. Okay, so it, it, you would also think that the hospitals are also going to be fully staffed in many areas that are close to the. Uh, so that's a, another. Absolutely. So so events another like piece that, of the planning. Events uh, like that, and and also, um, you know, EMS uh, folks, they're always trained that if the patient's not so critical, you can take them to a further hospital. There's no reason to um, um, clog up the closest hospital, and and different places do do triage and transport a little differently. Um, you know, if you if you look to a place like uh, in Israel, where they do mass casualties uh, quite often, unfortunately, um, you know they'll go they'll bring every patient to the closest hospital, and then from there retriage them and send them out to further hospitals. And uh, here we feel that we have enough resources that we can take them to further resource uh, to further hospitals and bring in other ambulances to continue the transportation. One last idea, I guess, that I wanted to kind of explore is that 
you have, how should I say this, uh, appropriately? You, ha- you have people, you might have people on the ground in, in this type of incident who clearly aren't going to, aren't going to make it, right? You have, we have a system in triage of, of different types of tags. Right. Okay. And it's people sitting there. In, in, in an incident sort such as this or a different type of incident where you might have a lot of people sitting or coming around, do you, do you have an impulse to transport everybody? Listen, there's always that impulse to transport everybody, but uh, that's why we rely on 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 the professionals to come in and and take that step back. You know, when an incident happens, the first thing we always tell everyone to do, and the first time, every time you walk into any incident, the first thing you you learn in EMS when you're going through EMT school or paramedic school is is scene size up. We don't go running into scenes. We stop and we walk into them. This way, we can get a good idea about what's going on. You know, if you see it come to a scene where you have, you know, potentially 20 patients, you realize right off the bat that, you know what, you're going to only be able to take care of one or two of those patients. So if I try to take, uh, start taking every patient, um, you're, you're going to end up treating no one. And I think they really uh, uh, touch upon that a lot uh, when you first start out learning in, the, in your EMT class. What do we learn from uh, the Israelis? I mean, it was talked about the uh, one of the hospitals. I forget which uh, the doctor at Mass General, I think, talked about how he learned from the Israeli emergency room experience. And look, that's not a, not something. I mean, we, we can be a lot very proud this week, Yom Atzmut and everything of of what Israel has brought to the world. I hate to kind of uh, say, wow, Israel has brought all this great emergency preparation because of their experience with terrorism. But sadly, it's true. Uh, what, what do you what do you as an agency learn from the Israeli experience? Well, we we, we learn many things. We learn um, how how what works for them, what type of uh, medical devices works best to control bleeding, um, um, how best they transfer patients, what they look for when they come to. I think that's one of one of the big things is you know now EMS providers when they come to a scene they're looking for a secondary device, you know. And that's uh, here was, an, was a, Boston was just another example of of how a, a terrorist uh, uses a secondary device. That device is really just to go after those emergency first responders. So you know one of the things that we now keep in the back of our minds all the time is that watch out for that secondary device. What's going to explode next? Is there an open garbage can where there may be another bag in it? You know what? Um, and we learn to move a little bit quicker on scene, getting that patient off the scene as quick as possible, but again, as safely as possible. Wow. Amazing. I, I will say it's it's having to think about the worst all the time. It, it's got to be difficult. So let's talk for a second about how to how do you debrief the people afterward or if debrief is the wrong word. How, no, how, de- debrief is the right word. Okay. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a tough thing. You know, uh, you know, you grow up in this business and, and everyone says you have to be macho and, you know, we're, we're not afraid of anything. But uh, the truth is, people have real feelings, and uh, and uh, it's tough. But you, uh, we have to try. Uh, listen, I was a supervisor for many years, and you know, you're, you're talking to, uh, to to young people who just come on this job and, and deal through with very horrific things, whether it's you know uh, accidents with children or or just regular bad things in general. And you try to get them to talk, not to keep the the, the feelings in. And even if it's in a in a in you know non traditional way by going out with them, taking them to a bar, having a drink with them, you know any way to get them to talk to get it off to you know and then and then when you see that there could be a real issue, you know you bring them to uh, 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 you you refer them to uh, someone who can really um, get them to talk and, and and let their feelings out. And we learn that. Not after that you're answer. suggesting that going out to the bar is you know something you want to you know encourage amongst people with uh, post traumatic stress. But, no. Uh, it's just untraditional. I understand that you no, don't want to drive them. It's, it's a place where people will feel comfortable and they'll share their feelings. Absolutely. Well, we're here with Morty Goldfeder, senior health and medical planner at New York City OEM. And uh, Morty, uh, one last question, I guess, for you as uh, we wrap up this segment is: uh, Have you are you in touch with the counterparts in other cities, if not Boston, right away? I'm sure it was a busy week for whoever is in Boston. Oh but yeah. Ha- but how much do you interact with those in other cities? We 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 have. Uh, because we realize that things aren't localized anymore, incidents aren't localized, we, we have a, a regional catastrophic planning team that we talk to the folks in New Jersey. Our EMS people um, talk to the New Jersey EMS. Uh, I, would, I think every, every two months there's, a, there's always a meeting where they talk over different incidents that happen between both. Um, and we talk regularly to all the regions, Nassau, Suffolk, Westchester, Yonkers. Um, whenever there's an incident anywhere, we get all the information we can 
because we want to know how we can, you know, fix any gaps that we potentially have before they happen. So that's the first thing that we try to do. And lots of drilling, I imagine. Absolutely, all the time. All the time, all the time at all the big areas. Well, Big and small and just, just to talk about it. Well, Morty, I want to thank you for joining us here, and uh, hopefully we won't have to discuss something like this anytime in the near future. But, we, of course, we'll definitely want to have you back. But uh, I want to say that uh, this is something that everybody kind of needs to know, that out there are people on a daily basis planning for the worst. And, unfortunately, everything that comes about, because if you don't plan and you're not ready, it's going to be that much worse. And I think we saw one, one less we could take from Boston is how thankful we can be for people who are ready at that point, that point of attack, to really uh, deal with the problem. Yeah, just just one more point. Absolutely. It's, it's not just for the emergency folks to plan. It also means for all, all people who live in the area who, who, in general, you should always have an emergency plan. You know, with your family, practice regular fire drills at home. What happens if there's a fire at night? Do your children know where the safe place is to go? Um, if something happens and, and parents get separated from children, do they know which relative to go to? Do they know which neighbor they can go to? Any type of simple plan you can do at home will always have a, a better outcome at the end. Well, I guess that's great That's great advice for the audience to say out there, okay, you, you have to go ahead and pre-plan. You have to know exactly what you're going to do beforehand. That's And uh, you're right. That's exactly, I, I mean, aside from stop, drop, and roll, that's what we always talk about. And all the kids know, you know, in the fire, stop, drop, and roll, everybody knows that. But I guess some of those other things we might not know as well. So and, I'll also tell you that um, if you are not sure about what planning is and how to plan, if you go to the New York City OEM website, uh, do a Google search for New York City OEM, we have tons and tons of brochures that you can download in over 30 languages. Okay. That'll uh, teach you and, uh, and help you how to plan. All the languages of the Jewish persuasion as well, I imagine. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, look. Yiddish, it, Hebrew, they have, they have it all. Well, some, you know, some of the Jewish holidays are big, uh, are big times for emergency planning. Uh, you know, fortunately, unfortunately. You know, those dealing with fire, Hamid's burning and, uh, and Hanukkah left and, and the like. So, uh, those are big times for the fire department and I'm sure your agency as well. And, uh, you know, EMS is always an interesting time. Uh, you know, it's always an interesting time for EMS. That's what I meant to say. So Morty Goldfeder, thank you very much for coming on Spin Class and, uh, really appreciate uh, you giving us some insight on what uh, emergency response is like. Thank you. It was a, it was a pleasure being here. Great. So we're, this is Spin Class. We're talking politics. We'll try and get a little bit to the political side of things once, uh, it, at, until we get to uh, one of our guests uh, who is going to give us an eyewitness account of what happened, uh, you know, in Boston. Uh, but a couple things I think that are noteworthy, noteworthy in the political front this this uh, this week. And uh, I'll start from the top because I like to uh, I'd like to start from the top. The top being El Presidente, uh, President Obama. He he suffered a significant loss with the with the Senate. Failure of the Senate gun control, the Manchin-Toomey uh, Act amendment, uh, that would have got called for universal background checks and a couple other things. But to me, that's not really the issue of the week when it comes to the President Obama. Uh, I was a little bit taken aback at the snub, the snub by the President of the funeral of Margaret Thatcher. And now this probably, it really didn't, a rise to the headlines in my mind. I didn't really see it anywhere that anybody was kind of criticizing him for snubbing uh, Margaret Thatcher. But Margaret Thatcher was the American ally throughout the 80s. She stood with the American, the American government against the Soviet, Soviet Union. And some of you out there might not remember what the Soviet Union was. Judith might be among them. But, okay, good. So, but... Uh, what I'm saying is probably my kids don't know what the Soviet Union was. Morty, I'm sure your kids probably don't remember what the Soviet Union was. But she helped bring down communism. And she stood with America. And she represented the great transatlantic relationship between the U.S. and the United Kingdom. And I think that, and yes, she was conservative, the Conservative Party. And yes, she stood for the free market, which I guess might not be in favor in certain quarters. But in the end... I think largely history will judge her as a great prime minister. And truthfully, I think that the president of the United States should have been at the funeral. But that's just me. A couple other things going on this week. Mark Sanford. You may remember him. Mark Sanford was the one-time governor 
of the great state of South Carolina, the Palmetto State, very important state when it comes to presidential politics. And Mark Sanford couldn't be found one time. And he said he was on the Appalachian Trail. He was hiking the Appalachian Trail. Of course, you know, that's what most people do when they're, you know, when they have a couple hours. But really, he was, well, having some extracurricular activities with an Argentinian woman. And um, he resigned. He got divorced. And he decided this uh, to run for his old congressional seat. And he won the Republican primary. Now he's running against the sister of the Colbert Report, Stephen Colbert. Now she goes by Colbert, Colbert Bush, but whatever, it doesn't matter. What it mainly matters is that Mark Sanford was poised to win. It's a very Republican district. This is to fill the seat of Tim Scott, who became senator. And that's, you know, as musical chairs go, you know, one one person leaves office, that would be Jim DeMint. And then Rick Scott comes become senator in his place. And then Sanford runs for the seats and he wins. But then Sanford decided that his son was lonely when it came to the Super Bowl, his 14-year-old son. And, yeah, I understand the parental impulse. I understand that you want to go ahead and yeah, be with your son. Except he is not allowed in his ex-wife's house. But he went anyway. And apparently it's a pattern that he had been doing that. Now, how this came out, I don't understand. It's in family court. It's supposed to be sealed. It shouldn't have come out. But it did. And uh, I don't know. I got to be honest. This is a guy who he just had said that he was, well, you know, Mark Sanford had said that he was a, out there a, uh, you know, contrite. And he had, uh, and he had uh, you know, done amends for things that he done. But he decided that he was going to go ahead and watch this game with his son. Why couldn't he bring his son to his own house, gone to a neutral site? I don't know. I don't understand politicians sometimes. I really just don't. It just doesn't make any sense. And that leads me to last week's hero, Anthony Weiner. And uh, we talked about Anthony Weiner last week. He wants to get back into it. And this week there's a poll that has him in second place in the Democratic primary. And he's got great name recognition. And, folks, he could win. I don't know. I don't know if he'd actually win. Because the way it is, I think his strategy means that he has to go ahead. And Nate Silver did a nice job on this in the New York Times. I urge everybody to read it. Everybody should check out the 538 blog if you're really interested in politics. And uh, we're going to get him for a future show. But Nate Silver explained that he can only win through uh, plurality, meaning that maybe low turnout and he wins, let's say, 15% and uh, or 20% and everybody else gets about the same time. But then he's got to go into a runoff so he can get the 40%. And when he goes into that runoff, he probably, you know, has a little bit of a ceiling because a lot of people don't remember and they don't like a guy who was on Twitter sending lewd pictures to underage women. Maybe they weren't underage. It really doesn't matter. Um, but if you read out there, look, Anthony Weiner, he's, uh, he's always an interesting guy, very colorful, always a, definitely a defender of Israel, been a defender of the Jewish people, a friend to the Orthodox community in many different ways. But... I got to be honest, I, I just don't see it. I just don't see it. I just don't see mayor of New York City together with Twitter joke constantly on going to be the butt of the late night talk shows. But let's not go into that. I want to get more serious again. I want to go back to, to Boston. And uh, Morty is still here with us in the studio, which is good, because uh, we have on the line uh, Rabbi Zaklos from, uh, from Chabad of Boston. And uh, Rabbi Zaklos, thank you for joining us here on Spin Class. You're very welcome. How are you? So, Rabbi Zaklos, I understand that you were present at the finish line of the of the marathon, and uh, you know, I was hoping maybe you could tell some of the New Yorkers out there, and you know, our audience primarily of the Orthodox Jewish persuasion, you know, what was going on there. Uh, I arrived to the marathon, you know, the typical Bostonian marathon with a full fanfare. Uh, excitement, everybody's upbeat, everybody's happy. It was a nice day. It was breezy, so I think the runners had an easier time last year. It was much, uh, much hotter. Uh, and I came with a very uh, clear uh, goal. I wanted to engage some of the Jewish participants, some of the Jewish spectators. I had my tefillin with me, um, and you know, I was going to use a wonderful opportunity to do a wonderful mitzvah. I was standing about a half a block from the finish line, um, you know, speaking, engaging with people, when 
some 25 minutes into my uh, arrival, we hear a very loud boom uh, towards uh, the finish line that's on my left side. Um, you can understand that people are, you know, it's, it's the shock, the horror that goes through people's minds um, is unimaginable. And naturally, people start drifting, at least the ones who are in my vicinity, start drifting towards our right, further away from the finish line. And as I turn my head towards the right, boom, the second bomb goes off. And, you know, you see that the fireball that kind of comes, that cusps the, uh, the top of the smoke. I mean, uh, you, you couldn't, it couldn't have been, uh, you know, a worse scenario, people feeling trapped, you know, nowhere to go, what's next, um, panic, you know, crying. I mean, just, just hysteria. Uh, it's uh, the, the, another um, component here is that people are waiting for their family members. Um, you know, families are kind of separated. There's the runners, there's the spectators, and people don't know where their family members are. If they are safe, there's hardly any way to contact them. What do you do? What's happening next? I mean, it's it's chaos. All those it's chaos. All those components, uh, you know, really um, equal disaster. Um, you know, the people in my near vicinity, I, I don't have a very panoramic view of what went on other than, you know, the smoke and the, that fire that, and that bomb that I, you know, saw go off. Um, you know, take, take cover in a near, in one of the restaurants. I mean, people are diving over the gate. It's pandemonium, no, no question about it. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the response is starting to take an effect. I mean, there's a lot of, police on scene to begin with. I mean, I think it was one of the, you know, the larger presence of, of uh, you know, Boston's local, state, and probably federal police as well. Um, you know, they still aren't sure themselves what, what is going to happen, what, you know, what can still happen. So there's a lot of confusion. Um, and, uh, you know, at that point, as, as uh, someone, you know, in a leadership role, you know, you kind of realize that you're put here for a reason and, uh, you know, try to see what, how you can be of assistance and how you can possibly help others. You know, little things, just guidance, just some sense of uh, um, collectiveness, some sense of uh, stability in all this chaos. And, uh, in fact, I went immediately over to a number of officers, including the captain. I said, I'm a rabbi. Is there anything I can assist? Please, you know, don't hesitate for a moment. I, I was actually standing at one of the corners, and a woman asked me, why are you standing? Everybody's running. You know, I was just trying to you know, help people move along. Um, and, uh, you know, following that, the police kind of had everybody move away from the area. There was, you know, there was certainly the uncertainty was uh, was very great. Um, and we, I mean, I stayed in the area for quite some time uh, till, you know, this until about six in, in the evening, and uh, you know, just helping people with um, very basic, uh, but uh, basic necessities. You know, how do I get? How do I get out of here? Where wow. do I go? How do I get home? Here's a phone. Here's uh, you know, a little word, words of chizuk, uh, sympathetic air, putting on phone with people. You know, I actually had someone who never put on phone in his life. So at that point, Zach was at that point, even after all the carnage. People were coming over to you and saying, "I'd like to put on tefillin." I mean, and that it was, the, it was certainly the people are, yeah, you know, and that's incredible. Are, I mean, that must be, you know, for somebody with those people who never put it on before, or do they know the significance? Yes, yes, no. Some of this, well, this, you know, one person I'm thinking in particular never put on tefillin in his life, um, you, you know, and uh, he was moved by the events of the day, um, you know, to reflect on his uh, Jewishness in, uh, in a new and a profound. Manner. That's incredible. We're here with Rabbi, Yo- Rabbi Yosef Zaklos of Chabad of Boston, who was an immediate eyewitness to to the carnage in at the Boston Marathon, the unfortunate carnage. And Rabbi Zaklos, were people in your immediate vicinity wounded, or or were you a little well, further I mean, away? I, I did certainly see people who were wounded. The, the blast himself, um, thank God, didn't reach our uh, immediate vicinity. That was you know, guess, a, a, a little miracle on, on, on my. My personal miracle. Um, but you were on uh, Bo- you were on Boylston Street, though, correct? I was on Boylston and Exeter. Boylston and Exeter. Exeter is the first street after the finish line. I was standing on Boylston. Uh, probably, you know, now they say it was um, 
I don't know, 200 yards between them. I was probably, you know, 60-40 between the bombs. That's that's kind of the uh, you know, the ratio I would uh, say is most accurate. I mean, they were both in I, – when I looked at the map after, I was like, wow, I was closer than I thought I was. Um, you know, and it was smack in the middle. There was, you know, there, was, there, was nowhere, there was nowhere to go. And, you know, you reflect, obviously, I was in Israel in, in, uh, about 10 years ago. I learned in uh, Chabad's yeshiva in Migdal Emek. And that year was sadly a, a uh, you know, bloody year in Israel. There were a bunch of bombs. And, you know, you immediately reflect back. You understand what, um, you know, you don't only, uh, you know, identify, you, you empathize with all that, the daily occurrences that, you know, Achim Ibn Yisrael go through in Eretz Yisrael. And to be honest with you, you know, the next morning, early in the morning, you know, that was Tuesday morning, I was reflecting on the world at large, um, if you're speaking about Baghdad or, you know, if you're speaking about, you know, uh, Islamabad, where these bombs go off and there are, you know, clearly a lot of innocent people whose lives are shattered um, you know, just seeing it, being witness to it, is, is it of uh, you know, kind of changes the entire perspective. Obviously, you know, it's Israel; it's closer to home, but um, you know, it's, it's it's a tragedy, it's a catastrophe, wherever uh, wherever it is. And um, clearly, the, our, our message. You know, I, I sat down, I went to the hospital after I came back. MGH Massachusetts, Massachusetts General Hospital uh, is in close proximity to my home, about three four minute walk in downtown Boston. And, um, you know, I went there, spoke to the chaplain, see what we can, you know, how can we can be of assistance to those who are wounded. A number of the wounded were uh, transported here. Um, and, uh, you know, later that night, I, I just wanted to tell the, you know, the people I'm, were in our, our community here in downtown um, what, you know, what, what's, what's the message and, and you know, what's the, um, what, 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 what's going on here. And the thought that, you know, that I tried to convey was when you're, uh, you're given a, uh, you know, you're put into a particular situation. Um, you know, it's not our, our choice that we're here. But once we're here, um, there's no question about it that we have the ability not only to survive it, but to grow from it uh, in, in a personal sense, in a communal sense. Um, and, uh, you know, that's what my personal reflection was. You know, I was put in a situation. I, uh, you know, there was something, something in me just, you know, gave me the kayak to go beyond you, you know, your normal self and to do things, uh, you know, try to do as much as you can for others. And uh, I think that's a lesson that um, all, you know, all can share in and all can, uh, you know, all can do. And ultimately, goodness will prevail. There's no question about it. And that was the theme um, here, I mean, on the street. I've spoken to many uh, police officers. In fact, the, the day following, <clears throat> excuse me, the day following, the bombing that was Tuesday, I went out and just as, you know, as Karas Atayv, I went to the, um, you know, disaster area, which was cordoned off, and I, um, you know, gave out kosher Danish, as it was, to, you know, and to this service, whether it was federal or, uh, you know, if it was the National Guard, and just told them thank you, you know, and, and one, you know, one National Guardsman says, why are you doing this? And I told him, you know, in, in Judaism, there's something called Hakaras Atayv, recognition for the good that others do. And he said, yeah, you know, my chaplain, my Jewish, my, you know, the rabbi, the chaplain in the National Guard also says that. It seems to be that this is an authentic theme in Judaism. He, he um, knew you know, were telling the truth because he had heard it before. <laughs> exactly. He had, heard, he had heard this theme before, and, and you know, he witnessed it. And, I, you, know, pe- you know, pedestrians who were walking by said, wow, that's so nice. I was clearly identifiably Jewish. And... Um, <clears throat> Well, you, people also just associate, you know, Jews with food. I mean, that's a common association. That's probably true. I, I didn't know if that was true in Boston as well. I imagine that it is. I, yes, I, I, clearly it is. It's a, it's a global phenomenon. It's a global, global phenomenon. phenomenon. But, but global Rabbi, phenomenon. I think you brought up something very important, and I think it's that it's something that we have to think about anytime. You know, you know fortunately, I think as you mentioned, uh, well, you me- I'm sorry, you mentioned uh, about a decade ago it was a very difficult matzav in, in, in in Israel, and I was living there uh, during the time of, of, of bus bombings as well uh, in the 90s. And, you know, we have to think about the fact how, you know, how difficult it is, you know, how much we have to commiserate and, and feel the pain of, of people who are going through. And, the, you know, the country's kind of coming together with on the, uh, uh, you know, after the aftermath of Boston. But we also have to, you know, as Jews, think about what's going on, you know, sometimes every day elsewhere to Jews abroad. So that's a very important concept. Definitely. I mean, in fact, I was I have a, had a good 
have a good friend. Uh, together we were part of Chabad of Tsunami Relief in uh, 2004. And he penned an interesting thought, which I think is, is very, uh, very uh, appropriate. You know, the Pasuk in Kisisa says, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu asks to see the Abish's countenance, to see the Abish's face. And the Abish says, You'll see, you know, the back, so to speak. And uh, one of the explanations to that is, um, is that Raisa Sakhira, you know, you want to see the reasoning, the God in the tragedy itself. And God says that's not, that's beyond uh, the individual to be able to see. Um, if he comprehended that, it would be, you know, it would take away uh, the entire system that the Abish just set up. But Raisa Sakhira, in the aftermath of a disaster, in the aftermath of, of all these uh, difficult events, you can see godliness. You can see, uh, you know, unity. You can see getting together. And, and the, um, the the idea here is obviously to uh, be able to perpetuate that the, the, you know, the goodness, the godliness that is seen uh, post uh, the disaster should be one that is um, one that is perpetual, one that remains. And my friend actually, his name was Zami Schneer, so okay. he's Zami Schneer, so I just give him the credit for that. B'Shem Omro. Thank you very much, Rabbi Yosef Zaklos from Chabad of Boston. Thank you for joining us, and really, Yashar Koach, for all the good work that you're doing there, and you know, hopefully everything will you know slowly, or actually quickly, but it probably will be a little slower than that. We'll we'll get back to normal in in Boston. And thank you for all that great work. And thank you for joining us. Thank you for and all for all the support and Shalom Yisrael to all you Amen. To all all inhabitants of the world. Amen. Oh, thank you very much. So we actually have some callers on the line. I want to take our first caller, Jacob from Brooklyn. Jacob, what's your comment? Hi, Mr. Fragen. First of all, I wanted to to comment. Um, you made about uh, Mr. Wiener, and you know, you know, I'm a Republican, and I'm not going to be biased on this issue. No, you however, would never be biased. How, however, I I do really believe that Anthony Wiener um, brings something to the debate. He he comes into the race. He's exciting. He's energetic. Um, and and I'm I'm a big believer of democracy. So. It's up to the voters now. Uh, I you, totally agree. It's definitely up to the voters, no question. And if you look at the polls, he may have a ceiling, he may have a floor, he may have to do something more to convince voters he has changed, but definitely up to the voters. And one, one more thing, it motivates the other candidates to really fight for their political lives, not only attend uh, boring forums, five forums a day, and just talk about issue after issue and not gaining any votes. It brings the candidates to really discuss the issues um, of main concern for all New Yorkers. Wait, they, Jacob, 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 hold on one second. You're saying that the, the Democratic candidates were not discussing the issues before Wiener decided he was going to get in the... Well, he hasn't decided yet. No, before I'm Wiener, not saying they didn't discuss... Or it's just for entertainment issues, value. But they discussed issues that, you know, if, if you look at member items... Um, Bill de Blasio attacks now member items. He supported it a few years ago. He attacks term limits. He supported it in 2005. Christine Quinn was against paid sick. Now she is for paid sick. Uh, she's a friend of Bloomberg, but a foe of Bloomberg. Um, so we really are not looking only for sparks, but really what every candidate brings to the race. Anthony Weiner, everybody knows what he brings to the race. Okay. Yes, he did some mistakes, but I'm sure... The voters are here out there to assess has he changed or not. It's up to them. Uh, absolutely, and I think I, I think you feel that he can get past those pictures. That's great, Jacob. Thank you very yeah. much for your for your call, and uh, you know we'll discuss it more again next week. We also have on the line Stephen. Stephen. Yes. Hi. Hi, Stephen. How are you? Fine, thanks. I want to get um, your opinion. I appreciated the the rabbi from Boston's words, but I want to get your opinion as to the impact that you think that the tragedy in Boston had on the uh, whole uh, gun control debate. Uh, I, I had seeing... a feeling you were going to ask about guns, and, and I might have to defer guns to next week, but uh, but I don't think they, they didn't use guns. So why would that have an impact? So I guess because, you know, you, can, you see that violence can be committed with household items. You know, there's really no proof or no correlation between... Um, you know, 
what they call assault weapons and, and crime committed by criminal. Well, I, I, that's a very interesting point and, you know, something I was actually thinking about because I, I, you know, I heard Bloomberg today saying, and, you know, more than just part of me saying, well, you know, they voted against, they turned it down. Now people are, kids are going to die. And I just don't see that correlation. So I think that's what you're getting at, correct? Exactly. Exactly. And, well, you know, uh, we're, look, us Republicans, we, 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 we want proof that, uh, before you ban a, a, a Second Amendment right, we want to know that uh, at least there's some kind of proof of correlation between the danger that it, that it causes. Well, and, and I'm a little bit more in the middle on that one. I got to be honest. I mean, I'd probably say that I th- I'm I'm really for background checks, but I understand why it went down and why it didn't happen. But we're going to save the gun debate for next week, and uh, and I appreciate your call. And you know, we'll have we'll we'll talk about if, it again if you can. I, I would like to call in again next week to have a, a more a, a more full throated discussion on a- it. Absolutely, absolutely. Absolutely. This is Spin Class. We're talking politics, and uh, we will speak to you next week. Stay tuned for The Book of Life with Charlie Harari on the Nachum Siegel Network.